On January the 2nd of 2009, a man using the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto released to the world what is now called Bitcoin. How many of you are familiar with Bitcoin? You ever heard of Bitcoin before? At first, Bitcoin didn't have a lot of value to it. In fact, in May of 2010, a guy ordered two medium Papa John's pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. So that just sort of puts it into perspective. Bitcoin really wasn't worth all that much. But if you've read about it or you've seen it, maybe some of you even own some, you know that the value of Bitcoin has just continued to increase and increase and increase through the years. In fact, just this past week, it hit an all-time high of each Bitcoin is now worth $62,000 per Bitcoin. Now, in 2000, and I guess it was 17, the early part of 2017, I was owed quite a, a large substantial amount of money. And I was paid with 42 Bitcoin. Well, immediately I cashed out all, almost all that Bitcoin back in the U.S. dollars so that I could you know, make sure that I had it because at the time the, the price of Bitcoin was fluctuating you know, so much and I wasn't going to take the, uh, the chance with it. Now, in case you haven't already done the math there, um, had I held on to it, this past week my Bitcoin would have been worth about $2.5 million. Now, in the words of that great theologian Homer Simpson, don't... <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't cash all of it out, but still, you know, it's like, wow, that's a lot of money. How many of you ever had something like that that you're like, you look back on something, you're like, oh, man, I really blew an opportunity there. You know what I'm talking about, those of you online? Have you ever blown an opportunity? Maybe it wasn't $2.5 million worth of opportunity, but you look back on it and you go, oh, man, what could have been? Now, I bring all that up because today we're continuing our series called The Four Prayers That God Always Answers. And what I want to talk to you about today is a prayer that you can pray that God will always answer that's actually based on one of the greatest opportunities that you have in life. But yet, most Christians are missing out on it. Most Christians are blowing it in the same way that I blew it by not holding on to the Bitcoin. How many of you are interested in a great opportunity like that? Right? You, you would want to know what that is. Well, thankfully, it's not too late you can actually do something about this one. Before we actually get to what it is, let me go ahead and just uh, do a little bit of a recap of what we've been talking about the, the last couple weeks here as we've been going through the series. So in John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says this, If you stay joined to me and my word remains in you or becomes a part of you, then you can pray for whatever you want and your prayer will be answered. And so what we've been talking about is if you pray anything that is according to the revealed will of God, that he says, this is what I want for you, it will come to pass for you as long as it's something that's going to be healthy for you, it's going to be wise for you, and it fits into the bigger picture of God's plan at the time. But he will answer these prayers. And what we've been saying is, you know, this isn't being presumptuous. This is actually a promise right from Jesus himself. So back in week one, we looked at, you know, you can ask for wisdom. That if you pray for wisdom, God will always give you wisdom. Last week then, we looked at temptation. That if you pray that God keep me from temptation or God help me to escape this temptation I'm in right now, he will always, always answer that prayer for you. Now, you may not have thought about this, but the first two weeks, those are prayers that you don't even have to be a Christian to pray. God will answer that prayer even for non-Christians. Because God wants everybody to be wise and make 
wisdom decisions based on his word. God wants everybody to escape temptation and not give in to sin. Whether you're a Christian or not, that's what he wants. Today's prayer, though, is one that this is something you got to be a Christian for. You already need to be a follower of Jesus. And this is a prayer that is so important to Jesus that he actually asked twice in Scripture for us as his followers to actually pray this prayer. Now you're going, well, wait a second, Gilbert. Last week you like were talking about uh, you know, the disciples and, and escaping temptation, and Jesus twice asked them to, to pray to you know, not be tempted. But that's not what I'm talking about here. That was two times he asked them in one story. What I'm saying here today is this is two separate instances where Jesus comes and he says, look, I want you to pray this prayer. Now, how many of you know, and those of you online as well, how many of you know that if Jesus asks not once but twice for us to do something, he must be pretty serious about it? What do you think? He'd be pretty serious, right? That this is a prayer I want you to pray. So here's a little bit of context as we start to jump into to Matthew chapter 9. That's where we're going to hang out for the most part today is in Matthew chapter 9. So if you want to be turning there, you can go ahead and turn there. If you're watching online right now, uh, up here in the upper right-hand corner of your screen, there's a thing called Talk Notes. You can go there. All the scriptures are going to be there. Everybody that's here live with us, you can go to our website, exponential.church. All the Talk Notes are there as well. But again, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 9, a little bit of context for you. Jesus is out and he's been teaching, he's preaching, he's healing the, the sick and the lame, the blind, he's casting out demons, he's doing all these different things. And then Matthew writes this, Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had what? He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is actually a verse that we looked at a couple weeks ago as we talked about compassion, as we were sort of wrapping up our series on finding purpose in the pain. If you remember, the, the Greek word there for compassion is splagna, and it means a twisting of the guts. That It's something you feel deep down inside of you. And so what Matthew is writing here is that when Jesus saw the crowds of people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, it tore him up inside. He's like, oh man, we have got to do something about this. Sort of sounds like our day and time, doesn't it? That there's a lot of people that you see that are, that are helpless. They're spiritually confused. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know some people like that? Some people that you know that just, they're spiritually lost. They're spiritually confused. They're, they're just sort of drifting through life. They don't even think about things like, you know, that one day I'm going to die and, and what's going to happen to me when I die. And so that's why then we read this in verses 37 and 38. He, meaning Jesus, said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are what? What does it say? Jesus says the workers are, the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his field. Now it's very, very important that you get this. I want to read it to you again. Jesus said, or it says, when he, uh, uh, yeah, let me read the whole thing. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his field. This is a prayer that if you will pray it, 
that God send more people to help lead more people to you, God will always, always answer this prayer. Why? Because his desire is that none should perish, that we would all spend eternity with him in heaven, that we would have eternal life with him forever. And so he's always going to answer this prayer. And here's something that is pretty amazing about this prayer. When you pray this prayer, you are the answer to your very own prayer. Right? When you pray, God, send more workers out into the harvest field so that more people can come to you. God goes, tag, you're it. So this is a prayer that he'll always answer, but you are a part of that answer because tag, you're it. Now, I already shared with you, Jesus gave this command to pray this particular prayer, not once, but twice, to two different groups of people. The first time he gives it is what we just read here in Matthew chapter 9. It's with the 12 disciples. Now, do you know why there's 12 disciples in the chat? Do you guys know why, why are there 12 disciples? Why, why weren't there seven disciples or 15 disciples? What was the significance of the number 12? Anybody know? Yeah, somebody said it. There was the 12 tribes of Israel. And so each tribe had a representative, sort of a head of that, that was the representative for everyone. And it didn't matter if you were part of a small tribe or a large tribe, you each had a representative. It's sort of like in the United States right now, we have what are called senators, right? And so it doesn't matter if you're part of a large state or a small state, every state has two senators. So something really small, like Delaware, two senators. Something really large, like California, two senators. And so when Jesus chose 12 disciples, the people are going, ah, okay, all right, he's making a political statement here. He chose 12 for a reason. So that's the first time that Jesus gives it. The next time he gives it is, is to a group of 72. He says to this group of 72, look, you need to pray and ask the God of the harvest to send more laborers, more workers out in his harvest field. Now, that number 72 has significance as well. Back in the Old Testament, when Moses had first led the, the, what would become the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, they're out there in the desert. And Moses is trying to do it all. I mean, there are like a couple million people. He's trying to lead the people. He's trying to solve all their like, disputes that they have. He's trying to be you know, the, the judge and the jury. I mean, he, he's trying to do everything. And finally, his father-in-law says to him, look, you need to divide up the labor here a little bit. You need to appoint some judges over these people. Says You don't have to sit and like try to do every dispute. And so how many judges does he appoint? He appoints 72. So in some ways, this is like his Supreme Court. Now, that group of 72 eventually became known as the Sanhedrin. So as you read through Scripture and you read that thing of Sanhedrin, that's what it's talking about. It's this group of 72 judges. So in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus gives this command to, to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers, more workers into his harvest field. He gives that to the 12. In Luke chapter 10 then, he gives this command to the 72 to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers, more workers into his harvest field. And the people are going, ah, oh, wait a second. He sent out a group of 12. He sent out a group of 72. We know what Jesus is up to. Jesus wants to rule Israel. 
Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I want to rule the world. Now, if it sounds like Jesus is on a power trip there, he's not. Remember the verse that we started with. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knew that he was the answer to that helplessness, to that spiritual lostness. And he said, I don't want to just solve that problem for Israel. I want to solve that problem for the entire world. I want to bring peace to the entire world. And of course, Jesus brought that peace by dying on the cross, rising again from the dead so that our sins may be forgiven so that we can have not just eternal life with Him forever in heaven, but an abundant life right here and right now. And so Jesus twice, He gives this command to pray this prayer, a prayer that you need to be praying, that God send out more workers, more laborers into the harvest field. And remember, you are the answer to that prayer. Now Jesus was so concerned about this that we would go out and and reach the world for him. That his very final words, after his death, burial, and resurrection, his very final words that he says to his disciples and to the crowds is found in Matthew chapter 28. We call it the Great Commission, where Jesus says, I want you to go therefore into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. He doesn't just give that command once, but five different times then in Scripture, we have this command that it's you and I, it's our responsibility to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. That we are to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Now here's the issue. Somebody cannot become a disciple of Jesus unless they're first a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense? You can't become a disciple of Jesus until you actually are following Jesus. But here's the problem. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 14, the Apostle Paul writes this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on Him to save them unless they believe in Him? And how can they believe in Him if they have never heard about Him? And how can they hear about them unless someone does what? Unless somebody, unless somebody tells them. Does that make sense? People can't become a follower of Jesus unless somebody actually tells them that you need to become a follower of Jesus. What we need to understand is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we have something even better than the cure for cancer. We have the cure for sin. That there's this disease called sin that is not only going to kill us physically, but it's going to kill us forever spiritually. And that the the punishment for our sin is a very real place called hell. But you and I, we have the good news. We have the solution to that. Again, that's better than the cure for cancer because even if somebody gets cured for cancer, they're still going to die physically. And so we have this responsibility as Paul writes here to, to tell people about that. Now, in the Greek, the word for this is euangelion. And euangelion, most of the time in English, is translated as evangelism. Now, right away, some of you are like, ooh, I hate that word. It's scary to me. It's intimidating. 
But again, keep in mind, euangelion simply means good news. Let me ask a question. If you're a doctor, would you be ever scared to pull in one of your patients and go, guess what, you're cancer-free? Would you be scared to tell them that good news? No. How about this? Do you think that your boss ever gets intimidated to call you in and say, we're giving you a raise? No. You don't get intimidated or scared giving people good news. Bad news, yes. Giving bad news to people, that's scary, that's intimidating. Good news, you shouldn't be intimidated by that. Good news is something you're like, man, I need to share this with you. I want to share this with you. This is the greatest thing that you could know. And in this case, the good news that we have is that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that our sins may be forgiven so that we can have eternal life with Him forever and an abundant life right here and right now. So we're to share this good news, but here's the sad truth. 95% of all followers of Jesus have never led another person into a relationship with him. Let me say that again. 95% of all people who call themselves followers of Jesus have never led somebody into a relationship with him. But yet that is the greatest responsibility that we have. Jesus' final command to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, his final command is to be our top priority. But yet 95% of Christians have never actually done that. Jesus says, look, the harvest is ripe. It's ripe. He says, there's plenty of people out there. And two times he says, you need to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers, more workers into the field because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You see the problem here? This evangelism, this sharing of the good news is to be our number one priority. Why are you here on this earth? It's to tell other people about Jesus. It's not to become a rocket scientist or the best salesperson or the best school teacher. It's not to be the best parent. It's, not to, it's none of that. It is to be an ambassador, an ambassador for Jesus. Euangelion, if you spell it, it's E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-O-N. Pick up what word is in the middle of that? E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-O-N. You and I are to be angels for other people. We're to be angels. We're to tell people about what Jesus did for us on the cross and how he'll forgive us. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Yet most people aren't praying this prayer and thus obeying Jesus' command to go out and to sow seed and to, to water the seeds and to, to pull up the roots. And then if we get the opportunity, actually bring in the harvest. Now many of you know that for the 11 years before I became a pastor, I was actually a professional magician. 
and I got to travel around, and I got to meet some of the people that maybe, you know, you, you've heard of before. One particular group that I got to meet was Penn & Teller. You ever heard of Penn & Teller before? So I, I got to hang out with Penn & Teller a little bit, and I'll tell you this, Penn is like the most profane person I have ever met in my life. At the same time, he is also one of the most intellectual people I've ever met, and he is a very outspoken atheist. I mean, he isn't just an atheist. He is an outspoken atheist, very anti-Christian. But about 10 years ago or so, a guy came up to him after one of the shows and gave him a Bible. And Penn actually did a whole blog about this, and he, he did a video. And I'm not going to show you the whole video here today, but I want to show you just a little bit of a, a clip from it, because in this clip, he's going to tell what he thinks about Christians who don't proselytize. Now, that's just a fancy way of saying sharing your faith. Okay, proselytize simply means sharing your faith in such a way that you're hoping to convert somebody else. But I want you to, to watch this and listen to these very profound words coming from an atheist. So go ahead and take a look at this. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that... Uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Pretty profound, huh? Coming from an atheist. How much do you have to hate someone to truly believe that there's such a place as hell and then not tell people how to escape from it? An atheist gets it. 95% of Christians don't get it. 95% of Christians have never led another person into a relationship with Jesus. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, why don't people lead people into a relationship with Jesus? Well, you know, probably one of the reasons is fear. People don't want to talk about their faith because, well, I don't know what to say. Or what if they ask me a question? I don't know how to answer the question. Or what if I offend them by talking about my faith? Again, you have good news. You're just sharing, hey, this is how my life got changed, and I want this same thing for you. And here's the thing about tough questions. It's all right not to have all the answers. I don't always have all the answers. When I get asked tough questions, you know what I say? Like, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Let me do a little research. I'll come back to you and give you the answer to it. And I go home, and what did we talk about the other week? I go to Google. What does the Bible say about So you don't have to, to fear in that way. Here's another reason that, that people don't share their faith, and that is that they just simply don't have any non-Christian friends anymore. Studies have been done that within about three years after somebody first becomes a Christian, they no longer have any significant relationships outside of family members with people that are non-believers. 
Now, in some ways, that's good because, you know, you're getting into a life group and, 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 and you're, you're changing your life and who you're associating with. And we've talked a lot about that in the, the past, that there's a lot of wisdom to some of that. But Jesus said that we're to be in the world, just not of the world. So you can't just completely shut your off, uh, yourself off from the rest of the world. If the only friends you have are all Christians, then you need to get some more friends. You need to ask some people that you're investing in their life. And the reason you're investing is you're hoping to, to develop a relationship with them so that they trust you enough to say, hey, why is your life different? What is it that you have that I don't have? And then that's your opportunity to share about Jesus. Now here's the good news. You have a great opportunity here to lead people to Jesus. And here, here's what I'm saying. I, I looked at the latest census statistics, and uh, not the one that's getting ready to come out, but the, the last one. 65% of people here in the Harrisburg area currently do not have a religious affiliation with any type of faith. 65%. 35% then say that they have some sort of a, a Christian type of uh, faith. How many of you know, though, that just because somebody calls themselves a Christian on a census survey doesn't mean they're actually a Christian? You know what I'm saying? So more than likely, here in this area, probably it's only maybe about 20% of people that are truly Christians, which means 80% of your neighbors, your friends, your family members, your coworkers, don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. They are on their way to hell if they were to die today. What did Penn say? How much do you have to hate somebody to truly believe that there's such thing as a hell and then not tell people about it? 80% of the people around you, that's where they're going to go. Again, you're, you're intimidated about, oh, talking to people and stuff. But here's what uh, uh, George Barna recently discovered. He did a study, and he, he found a survey, actually, and he found that one-third of people that currently do not attend the church say that they would come to church if somebody just simply invited them. They're like, you know, I'd really like to, to go and, and try it, but I'm intimidated just to walk into a church that I don't know. So I'm just waiting on somebody to basically invite me. So that's pretty good news for you. One-third of the people out here in the community that don't currently go to church one-third of your family members and friends and neighbors and co-workers, relatives, they're just waiting on an invitation. My point is this. People don't need an explanation. They need an invitation. Let me say it again. You don't need to explain the gospel. They just want an invitation. And if you invite them to come out, guess who's really good at sharing the gospel? This guy. I'll do it for you. That's why one of our core values here at Exponential from the very beginning has been, you know what, just become a world-class inviter. Now, do you need to learn how to share your faith? Yes. And that's part of the reason that we want you to go through our small circle, that get one-on-one -on -one discipling with somebody else, and they'll actually help to teach you how to share your faith. But in the meantime, people don't need an explanation. They just simply need an invitation. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few.
So the harvest, 80% of people on their way to hell, it's plentiful. But 33% of those people are saying, just invite me. But yet currently only 5% of people are actually doing that work. Here's my question for you today. Do you think that you could help to like bridge that gap? To, to reach more people for Jesus? So that we don't have this like 80% out there that only 5% of people are actually trying to reach them. Do you think you could help with that? And before you answer, let me remind you that Jesus' 12 disciples were poor, uneducated, unsophisticated, basically fishermen with no position or power or clout. But yet those 12, when Jesus gave them training and instruction, went out and they changed the world. You're going, well, Gilbert, when you put it that way, yeah, I guess I could probably do that. But man, I really, really wish somebody would have written down, you know, the, the training that Jesus gave them so that we would know how to do it. Good news. Matthew wrote it down. <laughs> he wrote it all down. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you four tips of how to share your faith. And these come uh, primarily from Jesus. I put it in the to words that, that we'll understand a little bit better, but I'll give you the supporting scriptures for it as well. So here's how I put the first point, the first tip. And that is, I must invite the right people at the right time. Again, I must invite the right people at the right time. Here's what Jesus actually had to say in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. We read, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, does this mean that Jesus didn't love the Samaritans, that Jesus didn't love the Gentiles? No, of course not. Later on, he would give instructions about when to go to them and how to go to them. But he was saying for his group of 12 in that moment that this is the right time and the right place and the right group of people that you need to go to right now. Right now. And it's the exact same thing for you and I. There's a right time and a right group of people. The question is, is this the right time to be inviting people to come to church? And the answer is yes, because in two weeks is Easter. And so that 33% that is more likely to, you know, they're just waiting on an invitation, that, that's probably up towards like maybe 40 to 50% right now because people are more open to a church invite around Easter and Christmas time. So this is the right time. Now, your next question is, okay, well, who are the right people for me? Well, I want to help you to discover who the right people are. And Bill mentioned to you a little bit earlier, hopefully by now you've already gotten a, a piece of paper or a pen, you got a notes app or something like this. I'm going to help you to discover nine different people in your life that you could potentially invite. Now, we're not going to actually invite all nine of those. I'll just take that pressure off of you right now. We're going to get a, a, a list of nine and then out of that nine, we're even going to narrow that down a little bit more. And that way you know that you have the right people. And again, you need to take this seriously. I need every single person with a piece of paper, a pen, an app. You need to write nine names down. This is not about being a hearer of the word. This is about being a doer of the word. How much do you have to hate people if you truly believe that there's a hell and not take the time right now to write nine names down? So at home... You got to run and get something, run and get something real quick. Here, every single person should have something. This is 
unacceptable if I do not see every single person with something in hand getting ready to take notes. Heaven and hell is the issue right now. Run out to the lobby, grab a pen, grab something, whatever you got to do. Borrow something, beg, borrow, steal. <laughs> this is serious stuff. All right. Here's what we're going to do. Three questions I'm going to ask you, and I want you to write down one name, just one name for each one of these. So here's the first one. Who have I invested in? Who have I invested in? Who is it that you have counseled? Who is it that you've given advice to? Again, don't write a lot of names down. Just one name. Who is somebody that you've counseled or given some advice to? Take a second and think about that. Write their name down. Next question. Who could use some good news? Who do you know that could use some good news? Maybe COVID is like really taking a toll on them physically or emotionally. Who do you know that maybe just went through a divorce or had a miscarriage or just lost their job or just had a death in the family? Again, just write one name down. Who needs some good news right now? Who needs to, to hear the hope that Jesus offers? Who is that? Next question, who is in transition or change? You know, most people fear change. They don't like change. But the irony is this. Researchers have discovered that when people are actually in the midst of change, it's in those moments they're open to other changes in their lives. And so who do you know that just got married or just started a new dating relationship? Maybe just had a baby or... You know, they just switched jobs. Maybe they moved apartments or houses or they moved from city to city. Who, who do you know? Because what we're going to do is we're going to invite, eventually, as we get through this list of nine, we're going to invite the people, either whether live here in person with us or online, to, to Easter. But we're going to narrow it down to the people that we've earned the right to invite. Again, we've, we're just writing names down at this point. Maybe some of these people are people you've earned the, the right to invite. But that, that's where we're heading. All right, tip number two. When I serve people, I help people to hear. Again, when I serve people, I help people to hear. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. Now listen. Maybe you've never healed somebody. Maybe you haven't cast out a demon since your last kid moved out of the house, right? But you don't have to, yeah, move out of your house. Yeah, your parents are waiting, Dylan. <laughs> he was sitting there giggling like a little schoolboy. <laughs> You don't have to do miracles in order to do the miraculous. Let me say that again. You don't have to do miracles in order to do the miraculous. You coming alongside of somebody and helping to heal a hurt 
of some sort, you coming along and serving someone, man, that, that goes a long way. We call it you matter here. That, you know, you show somebody that, look, you matter to God and you matter to me as well. That right away, it just touches people and you've earned the right to invite. So let, let me prompt a couple names for you here. The first uh, question I'll ask you is, who have I coached? Who have I coached? Maybe it was on a sports team. Maybe you coached somebody at your workplace. Or you taught somebody how to cook or how to do a home improvement project or how to do a craft or something like that. Maybe it had something to do with your hobby. You, you coached somebody and you helped them. Look, when it comes to this whole thing, I think John Maxwell said it best. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When you show people that you care for them, you've earned the right to invite. So who have you coached? Next, who have I tipped? Who have you tipped money to? A waiter, a waitress, an Uber driver, a, a delivery person. And so you can be thinking about that in the past, but in the coming couple weeks leading up to Easter, as you tip somebody, realize that if you've just given cold, hard cash to somebody, you've basically earned the right to invite them because you've done something nice for them. You, you've helped them. And by the way, don't be one of those Christians, I hate this, that go, I don't tip, I give them a tract with the gospel. Don't do that. I mean, you can give them a tract, but give them a tip too. Christians should be known as the most generous tippers that any delivery person or any waiter or waitress comes across. That they go, whoa, that was really generous of you. And you're able to say what Jesus said that we read earlier, that freely I've uh, been given and so freely I give. And I, I'm just, I'm generous because Jesus was so generous with me. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. You're like, yeah, come, come check out my church. You've earned the right to invite, but it's through your generosity. Third question, who have I served? Maybe you drove them to a doctor's appointment or you shoveled their sidewalk when we had one of the snows or maybe in the past you raked their leaves or you mowed their grass. Maybe it's somebody that you babysat for or you, you dog sat for them. Who, who is it that you have served? All right, so so far we should have six different names written down. Here's tip number three. My hospitality will open doors. You know, when you enter into a home, or uh, uh, Jesus says in uh, Matthew 10, uh, verse 12, when you enter a home, give it your blessing. So he's saying basically, when you enter into a home, you're able to give it your blessing. So how much more so when you invite somebody into your home and they're your guest, can you give them a blessing? I mean, if you're able to do it as the guest, you're being even more generous when you invite people to be your guest. And you can bless them. And that hospitality that you show is going to open doors for you. So here's a couple questions for you. Who has been at my table? Your kids have been at your table. Your crazy uncle has been at your table. Some of your friends have been at your table. These are all people that you've earned the right to invite. Next question. Who can I invite out to eat? You know, who's the person that you keep saying to them, man, once this, this whole COVID thing is done, man, I can't wait. We're, we're going to get together. We're going to go out to eat. We're going to do things. Who is that person? Or maybe you feel comfortable inviting them over to the house, showing them hospitality right there in your own home. Who is that person? 
Third group then, or third question is, who can I invite to a social event? You know, to, to go to a game with you or be a part of a class with you, to take a hike or to go on a cookout. Who is that person? You know, as things begin to open back up, especially as the weather gets nicer, who is it that you're like just so looking forward to hanging out with? Write that name down. All right, now with all nine of the people that you've listed there, here's another thing you need to realize. When you invite somebody to do anything, whether it's church or anything else, usually it takes three invites to actually get on somebody's calendar because we're just so super busy right now. And so a, a no oftentimes just means a no for now. So I don't want you to get discouraged with that. But here's what we're going to do with your nine names. And let's do a little bit of math. You got nine names there. And I said to you that 33% are just waiting on an invitation. So three of the people on your list, they're just waiting for you to invite them. And you probably know which of those three that is. That maybe they used to go to a church or whatever. They just, they just sort of gotten disconnected. And so go ahead and circle those those three names, and those are the three people I want you to invite for Easter. And statistically, things go as according to the way the statistics go. One out of three of those people actually show up. It's just simple math. Now, let me give you a tip for how to make your odds sort of increase here a little bit. Because most likely what you would do is with these three people, you'll go, hey, would you like to come to church with me on Easter? Which is fine, right? At least you did that part. You're doing more than what 95% of Christians are doing. So you at least did that. But let me again give you a tip to help you with this. When you say, hey, would you like to come to church with me? You know what that means because you've been here before. You've watched online before. You know what to expect. In their mind, when you say, hey, would you come to church with me? They're going, mm, that's going to be boring. It's not going to be relevant. It's going to be organ music. There's, you know, people are going to be all dressed up in suits and ties and dresses and stuff. And you know, the, the pastor is probably going to yell and scream at me. And, you know, and, and it's going to be like a big push for, you know, give all your money to us, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And there's probably going to be like snake handling. And I mean, you know, there's all these things in people's minds that they perceive it's going to happen when they come to a church. And so you can help them when you make the invite just to set up some of the expectations to go, hey, I'd really like for you to come to church with me two weeks from now on April the 4th for Easter. It'll be about an hour and you can either come live in person or we have it online as well. Uh, and it's, it's casual dress. You know, the pastor will be in jeans and a t-shirt. So you don't have to worry about getting dressed up. And, and the music's like really cool. It's almost like a, a, a mini rock concert in some ways. And, and I think you'll really like that. And, and, and the pastor, he just has like a way of taking the Bible and like making like the, the, the weird things and the difficult things just like make sense. And, and I always walk away with like something practical that I can actually do in my life. And so I just want to invite you to, to come and, and be a part of it. See how that, that changes in their mind? You, you've already told them what to expect. And so that's just a, a little extra tip for you to help you with that. I'll, I'll give you one last thing. At Easter this year, I'm actually going to be preaching on peace because after a year of quarantine and COVID and racial unrest and political unrest and all kinds of stuff, people are like, I'm just ready for it all to be over. I just want to have a little peace in my life. So that's going to be the theme for the day. So if that helps you in your invitation, then go ahead and use that as well.
One last tip, and this doesn't come from Jesus, but I think you need to understand that, understand this. Number four, and that is, I must set realistic expectations. Again, out of the three people you end up inviting, only one's probably going to say yes and actually show up. And you're going, oh man, 33%, that's so bad. No, it's not. just depends on if you have the right expectation. If you're a Major League Baseball player and you get a hit one out of every three times, you do that for a whole career, you go to the Hall of Fame. You're only successful 33% of the time, you go to the Hall of Fame. In the NBA, for the, the top 20 three-point shooters, when you average together what they combine three-point shooting is 35%. So for them, 35%, that's like really good. NFL, scoring is at an all-time high right now. Did you know that last season, only 37% of drives actually ended in some sort of score, either a field goal or a touchdown? But yet, they're ecstatic. They're going, man, we're doing really well. Only about one-third of the time are they being successful. So again, you just need to have realistic expectations as you do this. Now, I began today's message by sharing with you my story of you know, Bitcoin and, and the lost opportunity that I had there. And what I share with you today is an even greater opportunity an opportunity that you have to change people's eternal destinies. You can change somebody's eternal destiny. But as Pendulette so wisely said, how much do you have to hate somebody to truly believe that there's a place called hell and then not tell them about it? And Paul said, we've got this good news, but how are people going to know the good news unless we tell them about it? And so Jesus says, pray this prayer. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest field. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. All right, now just as we've done the last couple weeks, I'm going to have you pray the prayer. So just repeat after me. Father, help me to see people as you see them. Jesus, give me the courage to invite people for this Easter's worship experience so people can hear about the peace which you bring. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak when I don't know what to say. Father, we ask this with confidence because this is a prayer you always answer. In Jesus' name, amen.